Tom Bernard Show with Hackmaster at the left hand, Ralph Tribasham, MD. Co-host, Catherine Branch. Andy Brant Bernard. Cassie Schrader. We'll be right back. Hour two, Tom Bernard Show. Walzer Automotive Group started in Minnesota over 60 years ago. Most people know something about the Walzer way. Upfront, no haggle pricing, work with one person from start to finish, or the free lifetime powertrain warranty on most vehicles sold in Minnesota. What you might not know is they are the only automotive group that is a member of the Keystone Club. They join such great Minnesota companies as General Mills, Target, Cargill, the Twins, Wolves, and Vikings in pledging 5% pre-tax profits to local charities. It's a great example of their core values. Do the right thing, display positive energy, be open-minded, and lead by example. So if you're in the market for a new or used car, check out walzer.com or stop into one of their dealerships. Please don't say, tell them Tommy sent you, because it sounds fake, and I hate it. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company, and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. It's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? uh, Either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. In the summertime, when the weather is hot. Catherine and I were watching this thing on uh, welfare television last night. <laughs> yeah. Again, I didn't make that yeah. up. Somebody else did, but I love using it because it pisses them off so oh, it much. Oh, makes them crazy. It's like, it's settle so down. It's a joke, for God's yeah. sake. It's you're getting government sense bucks. Of humor over there. Then, you know. Yeah, if you're getting government money, you're on welfare. So. Yeah, how about uh, stop taking government money? Yeah, there you, you go. go. How about that? Why don't, you get, why don't you go out and get some ratings? There you go. have to fight for ratings like everybody else. But anyway. Just kidding. You're all wonderful people, I'm sure. Um, now I forgot what the hell I was going to say. You're watching something. Oh, we're watching, TV. Uh, yeah. watching the music of the 60s. Mm. And they had all these people performing oh. their old songs. It was so sad. It was unbelievable. <laughs> oh, no, it, was it was very sad. Oh, it's pathetic. I could, imagine. I could never it watch nice it. To see It'd be them. so sad. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh God. Well, the life of drugs will uh, ageist. take its toll. <laughs> You're an ageist. Ageist. Welfare te- television would not like that. Um, when I was at Brown Institute, I was an 18-year-old kid, 17 part of the time, then turned 18. No, those many years ago. Brown. <laughs> Oh, really? Sorry. That's where it's going to be today. That's where it's going to be. I had, I had a friend at the school. He drove a brand-new Eldorado. And he was a black man in America today, or then, today. And he wore a knit, multicolor uh, beret. Mm-hmm. But it was knit. And he and I, I won't, uh, he's, he died, unfortunately. Uh, but I won't identify him anyway. But he and I used to get in that uh, El Dorado and drive around and smoking weed and listening to The Last Poets. The Last Poets. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. heard... Uh, I'd ask Andy to bring up a list of their songs, but there's not one of them he could say the name of. So, because oh, every one of them has the big N in the title. Oh. <laughs> every one of them. Nice. Uh, big N's are scared of revolution. Run, big N, run. Oh, boys. <laughs> it was the last poet's Jalal Mansur Nuruddin, whose work in the spoken word group, The Last Poets, helped earn him the title of the grad, uh, grandfather of rap, died yesterday. He was only 74 years old. 
It is with extreme sadness and a heavy heart that the family of Jalal Nuridin announced the passing of this great pioneer of the recording industry, his family said in a statement. Jalal slipped away quietly this evening into the arms of Allah. No cause of death was revealed. Nuridin uh, contributed to The Last Poet's 1970 album. There it is, right there. there. Is. Uh, as well as the follow-up, This Is Madness, these albums, which, uh, which paired minimal driving percussive accompaniment with uh, emphatic, relentlessly political spoken word vocals, are widely regarded as crucial early examples of hip-hop. It is what drove hip-hop. Sure. Mm-hmm. Gil Scott Heron, I believe, is in The Last Poets. If I remember correctly, 1973, Nuridin also demonstrated his lyrical dexterity as lightning rod on the storytelling solo album Hustler's Convention. <laughs> Rapper Fab Five Freddy dubbed Hustler's Convention a cornerstone in the development of what is now part of a global culture, hip-hop. In an interview with Noisy, Wu-Tang Clan, Beastie Boys, and Red Hot Chili Peppers are among those who have lifted ideas from the record with veteran producer Ron St. Germain declaring Hustler's Convention one of the most stolen and sampled albums ever made. If you were 14 years old and trying to understand the streets, it was sort of like a verbal Bible. Public Enemies Chuck D. gushed in a documentary about the album. There's one part where Jalal goes, Big ends change their hair from black to red to blonde and hope like hell their looks will change. <laughs> oh, man, it was, I mean, for, a, for an 18-year-old boy, it was like, whoa, <laughs> I guess we're being straightforward with our opinions of some people. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Jalal Nuruddin has died at the age of 74. That was, uh, it made me grow up in a hurry driving around with Ed. I bet. Smoking a little geef and listening to The Last Poets every day. <laughs> <laughs> it was unbelievable. I just heard the Wu-Tang Clan this past weekend. You did? Wu-Tang Clan, where they performed at the Drop at Barney's in uh, Beverly Hills. They uh, they were there. Yeah, you could... So they one of the descendants, one of the or descendants or disciples of uh, the last. Yeah, poet. you were at your fancy smanchy party thing. Yeah, what? How not, was it? No, it was very good. It was very good, very well done, very well organized. Nice, great entertainment. What and, fancy schmancy party? Well, the heir apparent, Josh uh, had a had a display. Oh, he had some oh, of his yeah, some of right. his uh, earthquake early warning uh, stuff displayed with one of the uh, art, artists there. Who uh, they had some sweatshirts that were for sale. So we were there. Taking it all in, boy, it was it was a it was a diverse group. You talk about diverse, a diverse crowd. Man, that place was diverse. Holy cow! It's true. One British mother is chastising Walt Disney World for a disgraceful lack of adequate public restroom facilities. A frustrating <laughs> discovery made during a recent trip to the Orlando, Florida oh theme park with her nine-year-old son with quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Oh. Now the vocal mom is petitioning the park to make its restrooms truly accessible for all. How is it that possible that Walt Disney World doesn't have uh, access to the restrooms for all? I doubt it is. You doubt what is? That that's real. That it is not? Yeah. It would be kind of weird for no one to have any problems for so many years until just this specific person. That is very true. Well, a lot of these places, like, you know, theme parks and stuff, they have these family restrooms where it's just one big room. So it's, you know, got a changing table for babies and... So the, like the mom can bring all sure. of her kids in there. So right. you would think that that would, and they make it as handicap accessible. It's got the handicap toilet with the bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe there aren't a, enough of them, and that could be because I know, or you have to wait in line, right? You know, for the family bathroom, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, this this whole idea of uh, disabilities uh, act and the toilets and the and the code that's associated with that. It's been 50 years. I know. Yeah, you have I mean, to do it. And, that, and Disneyland has had so much remodeling that I cannot imagine in Southern California. Was it Disneyland or Disney World? It says Disney, Disney World in Orlando. Oh, Disney World in Orlando. Well, maybe the codes are different there. I don't uh, think so. No, but still, so with those codes, they, they require that for any remodeling. And I, oh boy, I cannot imagine. Well, that. she may be, like anything or, at Disney World, you have to wait in line for something. So well, maybe that's, that's true. the but, problem. But it's also possible that he has such needs mm-hmm. that. Uh, that it's almost impossible to make a bathroom for him because some of the people with yeah, CP maybe. just have they have no movement at all. Right. So it's just a, a right. terrible kind of thing to try to take care of them. Yeah, this sounds like not an issue. Basically, her problem is the bathrooms don't have like hoists that she can like 
snap him into and then hoist him from his chair to the toilet so she has to lift him up. But it's like, wow. hoist? So Man, what? That's, that's... Oh, no, I have to lift my son up every couple hours. Well, if he's a full, you know, if he's... Well, that's my point. He has, he has he needs. Weighs, he could weigh 200 pounds, and she can't do it. He, he's he nine, like, isn't he? Looking yeah. at him, he probably weighs maybe 50. Maybe. Oh, well, yeah. nonetheless. I, I did notice at the breakers when we were down at the beach uh, last spring... Mm-hmm. That they have two hoists there. Yeah, to get into the to get um, into the pool, hot tubs and the hot tub and the pool. Yeah, right. yeah, they do actually. But I'm huh. I don't understand why you would need a hoist for a 50 pound nine year old. I know. Maybe she's not strong enough to pick. Yeah. Fit. Well, her <laughs> husband was there with her. In April, Laura and Kevin Moore were disheartened to realize early on in their vacation to Disney World with their son William that there were no changing hoists in any of the park's public bathrooms. The Daily Mail reported on June 5th. William uses a wheelchair and cannot sit or stand unaided, but can alert his parents when he needs to go to the bathroom. His mother says it has become increasingly difficult to lift her son from his chair to the toilet as he has grown with the uh, park's uh, lack of hoist making uh, their getaway from, uh, it says getaway from Worthington, West Sussex, all the more complicated. If they spend a day in their park with me and my son, it be my son and me, but you know. Don't worry about that. Relax. They would immediately know there was a problem, Laura told the outlet. They can make all these amazing rides, but they can't put a changing hoist in a toilet. It's disgraceful that the biggest theme park on the planet doesn't cater to everyone. Disney is one of the richest companies in the world, and they work with Make-A-Wish Foundation, so disabled people are coming every day, she further amused. When you go, you usually see 25 or so children and adults who would need that kind of facility. Hmm. So I, I that's interesting. I, maybe that's just an, it, it, maybe it's an issue that hasn't come up. I don't know. I guess I don't know how many people would need a hoist every well, day. And yeah, we can't have every facility everywhere catering to these rare medical you know what, disorders. Though? You would think that Disney would. You'd think they be, would, just yeah. because the Make a Wish and and they're involved in a lot of things, and it is supposed to be you know the most wonderful place on the planet. What's their the, what's their little magic something something most magical place on something earth something like that mm-hmm. but yeah. the, I, so... the, well they changed the theme of the park god this bastard's expensive yeah. <laughs> no kidding what is it now $800 a day to get in no. or something? Like, my god but in the it's... rare case where you have to have something like that I'm sure you can ask an employee or something oh, I'm, I'm just I'm just actually kind of shocked that they don't already or, have that. Or the alternative in a situation like that where you're going to a place which may not have the facilities, well, use depends. I'm supposed a nine-year-old, I mean, that's uh, in the well, dignity. Just, it's, it's just an hour, two hours. How long is it going to be there? Three I hours? I don't know. It's, it's, I, not, it's a tough topic. I, I mean, if I, you've I know, got a kid but, that's got that kind of a handicap, yeah. you definitely would like to have life as easy as possible yeah, for The you. Moors are not the only family feeling irate with the mega park's lack of accessible restroom facilities. Lauren Sr. of, Bur- of Brideport, Dorset, told the mail that her family was left fuming over the same disappointing issue when they realized that Disney World's restrooms could not fully accommodate the needs of her disabled brother during a recent visit. We knew before we went they didn't have the facilities, so we contacted them ahead, but they said there was nothing they were willing to do about it. I'm sure they didn't say, well, no, we're yeah, not willing to do anything. They didn't say that. They can't just install a hoist or something like this. Well, no. when my aunt was in a nursing home, they have these portable hoists that they can go from like bed yeah. to bed. And they literally, the, so the nurse would put somebody into bed on the hoist, then take the hoist to the next room and put them in bed. And they would, they, that's what some yeah. of the people can't get in and out do of bed they, by themselves. I mean, do they have like a wheelchair that will hoist? Cause they have like those lift chairs to help mm-hmm. lift you up like the recliners. Oh. I wonder if they have some type of wheelchair that if you're strapped in, it will help you stand up. And then that way a mother with yeah. a son or something that has that, all they have to do is unstrap them. And I'm sure they do. And just turn them around instead of, you know, deadlifting a... I'm sure they have those, but who knows? Maybe it's just like a million dollars for that yeah, kind of wheelchair. Probably. Well, here's the response. Restrooms at the theme parks offer facilities designed for access by guests with mobility disabilities. Companion-assisted restroom facilities are also available at various locations in each theme park. Theme park first aid locations have facilities with additional space and privacy for individuals who may need assistance from a member of their party with their personal care needs. So the park is saying they do have this covered. 
Yeah, oh. because they can go to one of the first aid stations, or they could, they might should be, should be able to. It's probably a number that you can call. Hey, we need a little help with uh, Jim here to get him onto the pot, and someone can help. Yeah, lift him up, get him because there's AIDS. You know, when you go into a hospital, the guys that are there that the AIDS. They're not small guys. No. They'll pick up anything. Well, no. I'm sure Disney, too, also yeah, has probably there, a full urgent care, care clinic just They have on nurses site. on staff. I yeah. remember one year we went to Disney World, and I needed somebody needed an aspirin, and you can go and get, a, get an aspirin at the... Uh, at the clinic in there, and then I needed a Band-Aid, and I went over that for some reason. I was like, I never even knew this clinic was here or this first aid station, and we've used it twice in a day. Well, maybe they should just, uh, because it's so expensive there, maybe they should just add Botox. You know, you pay, pay <laughs> yeah, there you, go. you can go and get you some Botox or some fillers or something. It'll be a ride. Like, you go in, you get all fixed up, you come out, and you're all done. <laughs> Why don't they just build another Disney World? <laughs> no, they got it covered. It's just oh, they, Well, they have. There's one in China. There's one in Japan. There's one, one in Paris. In, Another in, in France. In, I mean, because both the ones in America are constantly like near capacity, and they're so expensive because the demand is higher than the supply. Right. So you'd think, you know, build another one, and there you go. There's that much more money for tickets and everything. Right. Yeah, but they want they want it to be difficult to get in, and they mm, want it to, to be, be special. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm not going. Oh, I love Disney What do you mean World. you're not going to Disney World? Yes, you I are. Love Epcot Center. Build That's a third favorite. one, and I'll go. Hey, look, let me just put it this way. Fonny's not going to Disney World without Nanny. It's I'll go during a hurricane. During a hurricane. Your so mom no and I actually there. did that. We went one time. When actually, we, it was a cold snap. It was a cold snap, yeah. Oh, no. We no, were down I mean, to it, was, 50? it was cold. We had to like buy gloves and hats. It was it was, it was cold. so much fun, though, because Catherine and I owned <laughs> Disney World. There's yeah. nobody there. Yeah, we, I like that. It was great. I know. We, I think we went through the Haunted Mansion like five times in a row. We just <laughs> got off and kept getting in back in. Well, we, <laughs> one year, we went one year with the wonderful. kids. We get up in the morning. We get up in the morning. Go to go to the Walt Disney World for the first hours, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Yes. Crowd started rolling. Yep. We left. Kids mm-hmm. swam, took yep. a nap, yep. had a bite to eat. By that time, crowd's turning down. We yep. go back. Places empty. It was raining one night. Uh, it was, it was there was nobody there. Rain is great. Right? And to be on those rides, <laughs> on those rides, it was the best. Went on that that silly little roller coaster in the rain. It was yep. it was so sweet. Yep, that's the time to do it. What month did you go? February. Know. February. Oh, well, the February. record low for Orlando would be twenty six. Oh yeah, I can get cold. Twenty six. Yeah. So what year was that? Ninety six. That might have been it. No, nah, we didn't have kids yet. No oranges no. that year. We didn't have kids yet, so it had to be before 1986. That's true. So, yeah, it uh, it can get pretty cold. It yeah. Was, yeah. I remember we could see our breath and It was everything. in the 40s. Yeah, it yeah, was in it like was the cold. low 40s. Yeah. Maybe even, it might have been in the upper 30s. Actually. Yeah, we're like, really what a cold. bunch of wimps. <laughs> we're running around owning the park. We're from Minnesota. Yeah, that's the nice thing about having cold tolerance. <laughs> we can deal with this. Oh, yeah, Floridians, there's no way they're going to the no. park. No, no. Andy, what time do you have over there? I have almost 16 minutes. 16? Oh, dear. Oh, my God. That's why I want to check. I thought it was a little bit off. All right. We'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show. Hi, this is Tom. If you spend any time at the lake, you know how important it is to have the right dock. That's why you should know about flow docks. Flow docks are rock solid with double bracing to eliminate side-to-side sway. They're completely modular so you can configure them to your family's needs or add on as your family's needs grow. And get this. You can install... Level and remove your flow dock without even getting into the water. You see, Flo's passion to invent a better way to make life easier comes through in every product they make, right down to flow boat lifts that are quieter, faster, and effortless to install and use. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Flo is about making things easy. My friends at Flo also told me that hockey star Ryan Suter bought a flow dock and lift as he wanted the best for his family. See for yourself why they say they've been perfecting leisure time since 1983. See them at docks and Lifts. A better way. It's Tom telling you how easy it's been for me to lose weight on the Nutramost weight loss plan. And now you can find out how to have success losing weight at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth, just like me, at their free informational dinner on Monday, June 18th, 6 p.m. at Jake's in Plymouth. Those unwanted pounds will melt away really fast. I've lost over 55 pounds at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth. After being educated on clean eating, finding out what foods my body prefers, and I now know the foods that are weight gain triggers. 
As I've said over and over again, the Nutrimost weight loss plan is so easy, and they guarantee that you'll lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. There's no exercise, shots, drugs, prepackaged food. I'm never hungry. Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth has helped me change my life, and I know they can help you too. Call now to register for the Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth dinner. It is on June 18th. To register, call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. Oh, really? <laughs> Cassie's being all clever with the lift for the body. I can't help myself. <laughs> help me. This reminds me of a story Deb Gerard told me about her dad. Her dad was swimming, I think it was in Mexico. He's out in the... Oh, the waves start getting worse and worse, and he he sort of felt like he couldn't get back to shore. And he was he wanted to call for help, but he said he didn't know how to speak Spanish, so he yelled out, Helpo! <laughs> Helpo! Helpo! Yeah, Helpo, that's it. <laughs> Helpo! Yes. That'll get it done. My favorite of those is when I was in ninth grade at Jordan Junior High School. The fattest kid and the skinniest kid got into an argument, which oh. turned into a semi-wrestling match. Yeah. Right? So this big, giant kid and this little, tiny rail are arguing, and they start pushing each other. And the big kid put the, the small kid in a headlock, and there was no noise at all in the gym. It was a gym. Not a sound. And then all of a sudden you heard, Help, he's killing me. <laughs> But he did, he went, help, he's killing me. It was the oh. greatest. <laughs> Teacher goes up there, knock it off, damn it. <laughs> it was fantastic. That's great. Boy, this is a hell of a story here. I don't know what they're going to do about this, but Luke Heimlich, the Oregon State pitcher who pleaded guilty to molesting his six-year-old niece when he was a teenager, uh. was not selected in the first 78 picks of the Major League Baseball draft on Monday. Heimlich, 22, was slated to be a high-round pick in 2017 draft, but his arrest as a 16-year-old was revealed by the Oregonian just days before the draft. Yeah, that's going to put a damper on it there, pal. He underwent, uh, he went undrafted and returned to Oregon State for a senior year. However, the Texas Rangers indicated recently they have removed Heimlich from their draft board, while other organizations have refused to address whether they are considering the left-hander. He's a phenomenal pitcher, too. That's too bad. I know, but you you molest your six-year-old niece or cousin or whatever it was. What was it? Niece. Oh, God. Yeah, it was a six-year-old niece. Ugh. And according to one of the former uh, psychologists who would care for the sex offenders, the bad sex offenders in the state of Minnesota, he says there's no treatment for that problem. No. You can't you know, treat it. You know, so it's something that's a yep. – the recidivism is very high. So you have to – oh, that's a – oh, sad. Uh, it's pretty amazing now. It says Heimlich signed a seven-page guilty plea in a deal that enabled him to avoid jail time. In a recent Sports Illustrated interview, he denies molesting his niece, a claim vigorously refuted by family members themselves. So good luck to you, kid, but you're not going to be in the major leagues. I can guarantee you that. This is what I got into a next-door uh... – you know what Nextdoor is? It's like a Facebook app kind of like thing for, for your communities yeah, or neighborhoods. Oh, it's a segregation. So it's, another, it's, it's your own culture. It's your own little place. Your own, well, you're segregating yourself. No, it's your own little every, place. You can have a diverse door. neighborhood. It's for, it's for anybody that lives around you for like selling stuff or, oh, you know, neighborhood night out or whatever. So apparently somebody in on this Nextdoor neighbor group, there was a guy in a van that approached two kids on bikes, and um, so everybody was talking about child molesters and pedophiles and stuff, and at the end of it, I had posted something about, uh, it was something that the government had uh, written up about pedophiles and recidivism and all this kind of stuff, so I posted that so everybody knew what the actual truth was about it, because they were like, oh, pedophiles don't don't, uh, re-offend. Very what? often, very often, and very I'm like, often. So everyone I, reoffends. So rather than saying, "I think you're wrong," because that's when, whenever you're on social media, you can't say something like that because right. you'll get attacked immediately. Right. I just posted that whole thing. Uh, no, end- posting facts also is a good way to get attacked. <laughs> well, it turned it ended up with white men are the cause of all problems. Of course, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And There's when I no said question. I said that's mean, 
they started attacking me, and then I'm like, okay, I'm just deleting this app, and I'm out. Uh, you got to blame someone, and they will, they'll always blame the person that they can get away with blaming, how even do if they, it doesn't make sense. How do they f- figure that white men are the cause of all problems? They don't. All problems, Tom. They all just problems. want someone to blame, and they won't get in trouble if they blame white men. So what? basically, when the Egyptians held the Jews as slaves, that was white men? I don't think so. I'm almost certain in that... Uh, it, that was what uh, three thousand years ago. It's an outrageous statement that has just gotten a lot it's of ridiculous. steam in the last four or five years, mm-hmm. and it's just not going to end until we find somebody else to start blaming for everything. I blame Cassie. And for as long everything. as Donald Trump is in office, I think that that's going to be. The, oh, that's yeah. That you're not going to stay while he's is. in office. Yeah. There's no, no doubt about it. It's going to be this way for. This is interesting. Years. This is the kind of thing that Ralph Basham and Andy Bernard would find fascinating i do as well and you guys i think will narcissists can be tricky to spot especially if you're in a romantic relationship with one this tends to be because they rely on using and manipulating others to fulfill their needs and desires all while blending in like a chameleon when people say narcissist they often like for some reason lately when people say narcissist they mean psychopath yeah they mean it sounds like they're talking about psychopaths right now narcissism a form of Mental illness? No. Narcissism no. is just... A, a, oh, I thought it was... There's like narcissistic personality disorder, but oh. narcissism is just like, you know, You're a run thing. of the milk well, person? Social media is narcissism. It's driven got, by yeah. social... Uh, no, by no. Narcissism yeah. is very common. Self-centeredness. I'm the most important thing in the world. Well, look not me, me, but, you know, yeah. figure it me. And my, yeah. my stupid opinions are better than your... Stupid opinions. Stupider opinions. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The vast majority of people are narcissists to some degree. There's no doubt. There are three distinct types of narcissists. They often behave in specific callous ways, but it can take some time to work out their patterns. Even when they're exposed for what they are, narcissists can still hook in their victims again by promising they will change and giving out intermittent reinforcement. But according to a new study published in the Journal of Personality... You may be able to detect a narcissist by focusing on one particular facial feature, their eyebrows. What? Researchers Miranda Jacobin and Nicholas Rule recruited participants to look at the faces of people who were all across the narcissistic spectrum from a normal level to full-blown narcissist. And it turned out they were pretty good at identifying them. Strangely, when participants were shown pictures of just the eyebrows, they could correctly identify the narcissist, too. (laughs) What? They highlighted femininity, grooming, and distinctiveness when they picked out the narcissists. But results uh, showed it was distinctiveness that was key. Narcissists tended to to have darker, thicker, more distinctive eyebrows. The research... So I would be a horrible narcissist. Because yeah. I have very faint eyebrows, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not wrong. a good narcissist. So you're, if you're a br- if you're a brunette, you're a narcissist. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? This sounds racist. I have dark eyebrows. Hey, what's going on? This is this I'm is. Not this a is dark. I don't know. This doesn't bushy. sound like a real. <laughs> or are they? <laughs> I do tweeze. It was in the magazine of personality, Andy. What more do you want? So nobody that's a redhead can be a narcissist. Nope. You know, that was that diagram. <laughs> Another <laughs> reason why we're superior to everybody. <laughs> not that that's narcissistic. Yet another one. Yet another. The researchers tested the results again by photoshopping narcissists' eyebrows onto the faces of non-narcissists and vice versa, and the eyebrows gave the game away again. Hmm. Eyebrows make our faces more recognizable, and in recent years they have become something of a fashion statement. Narcissists may like to make a statement with their brows so to tantalize potential love interests and make an impression. As the authors wrote, tantalize potential love interests. As the authors wrote, they might seek to maintain distinct eyebrows to facilitate others' ability to notice, recognize, and remember them, hmm. and thereby increasing their likability and reinforcing their overly positive self views. It could also simply be because eyebrows give away more social messages than we realize. They're important for our facial expressions but could also reveal subtle subconscious information too. The ability to identify dark personality traits at zero acquaintance provides particular value for avoiding exploitation and manipulation, the researchers wrote. The increasing incidence of narcissism underscores this value. Fortunately, people can accurately judge others' narcissism based on how they act, what they say, what they wear, and what their faces look like. 
Whatever secrets eyebrows hold that mean they may reveal someone's dark personality, they could be reason enough to steer clear. So stay away from Groucho Marx. That's right. <laughs> well, all the Marx brothers. Yes, all the Marx brothers have big, thick eyebrows in there. They've they? got eye- eyebrow extensions now. They do, yeah. Where they're gluing on little pieces of Why? hair. Uh, their eyebrows because eyebrows are like a big they are they're like a fashion statement right now everybody's like um, really into the eyebrow so i just got yelled at because my eyebrows were too long (laughs) i just went to the barber too long hey hey, you want me to trim those eyebrows so now i should not have i should not trim my eyebrows so now i should look like a mentat well it depends if they're crazy eyebrows you Mm. definitely want to oh so these are not crazy eyebrows speaking of crazy I, i can't really tell (laughs) <laughs> Do you uh, know anything about Lizzie Borden's eyebrows? No. Lizzie Borden took an axe. I know that. Yes, she did. I but know. Rod Sadler might. <laughs> it's a, you know, that's Andy's big intro there, Rod. I don't know if you know <laughs> that or not. Uh, his big okay. intro for Rod Sadler. Uh, to Hell I Must Go, the true story of Michigan's Lizzie Borden on a cool spring day in 1897. You know, i got to tell you, Rod, I am really happy that I wasn't born in about 1880. I know. <laughs> that, that era sounded very horrible. It, it was very horrible. Yes. Yes, it was. Was it because all these new things were being invented and, the, you know, everything was... Life had gotten much easier. In about 1890, life got much easier, at least for people in America and Western Europe. Well, that's when people started, like... Um, Moving into bigger cities more and more. Yeah, they did. Before that, right, life was a lot more rural. On a cool spring day in 1897, Alfred Haney left his uh, Williamston, Michigan home to earn a day's wage. He knew his wife's peculiar behavior had become more frequent, and he had planned on seeing the town doctor. But she assured him she was feeling much better that day. When he returned home later that day, he discovered a macabre murder so bizarre that it shook the entire community to its core. Uh, Rod Sadler, I'm telling you. Oh, you were a copper. Thanks for your service, Rod. I, wa- I was. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I, I really appreciate it. I was a police officer for 30 years. We love cops um, here. And I started working on this book back, oh, years ago when I was doing some family research. Uh, my great-great-grandfather was the sheriff in Ingham County, Michigan in 1897. And uh, I, was, I was looking through old newspapers, uh, looking for any articles with his name in it, uh, hoping to find out a little bit about him. And I came across this article um, about this horrible murder in the town where I actually grew up. Uh, and so over the years, I collected bits and pieces. And after I retired, I said, now's the time. So I wrote a, a short book about it. Ingham County it is? Ingham County, Michigan? It is. Yeah. Ingham County, Michigan is is um, actually houses Lansing, Michigan, which is oh, okay. uh, the state capital. Yes, sir. Um, so, did, did you did you count on being? Did you want to be a cop from the time you were a little boy because of your great grandfather? And were there any other coppers in your family? Um, you know, I have a couple relatives that were um, that were officers um, recently, uh, within the last twenty five or thirty years. I didn't really want to be a cop because of my grandfather. I just, uh, as a matter of fact, I had forgotten that he was the sheriff in 1897. Oh, okay. And every once in a while, my dad would remind me, hey, don't forget your, your great-great-grandfather was the sheriff back in the 1890s. And um, that came to came to a, a light even more when I started um, as a police officer. He would remind me even more and more about it because I actually worked in Ingham County uh, for a small agency, uh, a community college police department, and we were Ingham County deputies, so there was kind of a connection there, too. Are you related to Sergeant Barry Sadler? You know, uh, I get that question all the time. I bet you uh, do, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> he did a song called uh, The Green Berets. Sergeant the Ballad Barry of the Green Berets. Oh, yeah. Ballad, yeah. Ballad of the Green Berets, absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about it. Uh, okay, so we're back now on a cool spring day in 1897. Alfred Haney, he's leaving the house. The missus says, don't worry about a thing. Everything's fine. What happened then, Rod? She convinces him that she is fine. She has a history of uh, uh, epileptic seizures. Uh, everybody in town knows that she's not quite right. Uh, sh- they live in a small shack on the east side of town, and they're paupers. 
Uh, he has to go out and work on the streets every day, um, you know, helping construction, things like that, to, just to earn what he can to, to survive. He lives there with his 85-year-old mother and uh, with his wife, Martha, who's a little bit younger than her, and she had been married before. And uh, her she didn't have any kids when she married uh, Alfred Haney, uh, and everybody wondered what happened to the kids, what happened to the kids. Um, so she convinces him because he, he has become to the point where he realizes she needs some help and he wants her to go see the doctor. She convinces him, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, we can go tomorrow. So he goes out to, to earn his wage for the day and, uh, he comes home. Okay. Now, Rod, dis- I want to take a I'm quick, sorry? I want to take a very quick break here and come back. And the, he comes home is the key to the whole deal. We'll be right back very shortly. More with Rod Sadler, Tom Bernard show. We're here with Chris Lindahl, and we can't tell you where he works because he's got a big announcement. That's right. We have now started our own real estate brokerage, Chris Lindahl Real Estate. We have declared our innovation independence. And basically, we're taking the same team approach, but we needed to free ourselves of the traditional real estate process that is costing homeowners tens of thousands of dollars and replace it with an innovative strategy where we can get homeowners a lot more money for their home sales. And that's what it's all about, right? I mean, everybody wants to sell their house for the maximum amount they can, uh, and you can get that done for them. That's right. And we're so committed to being generous and giving back, and that's why we do the different events that we do in town. And, and we also invest in our people to create leaders so that they can go back to their communities, their families, and their clients and make a difference. Hey, whenever he comes over to the house, is always, oh, look, Mr. Generosity's here. That's right. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Congratulations. It's a great announcement. It's going to work for you, and it's going to work for all the people who work with you. So that, that's the great part of it. That's right. And thank, thank you to all the listeners for reaching out and, and supporting us and congratulating us. You can go to chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K, to reach out to us, or call 763-401-SOLD. Or you can just uh, type in mrgenerosity.com. No, that's not true. <laughs> Chris Lindahl, and the name of the company is? Chris Lindahl Real Estate. I like it, man. Thank you. Thank you. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Karen Yontay, Cassie, theme music, Trader, Ms. Schroeder, playing the music. Um, Rod Sadler, a very, very special guest, okay? Alfred Haney left his uh, Williamston, uh, Michigan home early during a day's wage. He knew his wife's peculiar behavior had become more frequent. He had planned on seeing the doctor in town, having her see the doctor in town. He comes back home from work, and that's where Rod Sadler left off in uh, part two. Part three of hour two, back to Rod Sadler. Uh, Thank you. He he. Uh, Alfred comes home. He comes home for uh, lunch, as a matter of fact, and uh, he walks into their shack, and uh, is appalled to find that his mother's head has been separated from her body with an axe, and set on a plate for him for lunch with uh, oh. knife and fork on both sides. Oh, my God. I didn't uh, know that part. In, in, the, uh, in the small area, dining room, kitchen area, uh, is her headless body. Uh, his wife, Martha, has taken a uh, pan of warm coals out of the stove or out of the oven and set it between uh, the corpse's legs and then doused her corpse with kerosene, uh, thus setting the body on fire. Wow. Inside the shack? Inside this, yes, this very humble shack. Um, As it turns out, they had become embroiled in an argument, uh, Martha and her her mother-in-law, Mariah, over a photo. Uh, Mariah had a photo of her uh, deceased um, Civil War veteran husband, in the photo, and Martha had taken that, 
and uh, torn the picture out and put a picture of her three kids in there. And they got into an argument, and Mariah locked her outside the front door. And Martha ran around to the back of the house, grabbed an axe, came back, uh, beat the door in, and proceeded to uh, knock Mariah down, knock her out, and then behead her with the axe. And how old is uh, Martha at this point? Martha is in her late 20s. She's in her late 20s. And, uh, of course, Alfred runs out of the house screaming, uh, goes tried to, trying to find the, the local marshal. Um, the, there's some workers that are working next door at a stave factory, and um, they come over because they see the smoke, and they start trying to put out the fire. And one of them actually runs in the house and sees the exact same thing that Alfred has seen. He sees this this woman's head on a plate on the table. He sees the body is is smoldering, and uh, he, he's absolutely appalled, too. Um, I, I was able to actually find the original circuit court file from 1897 in the Michigan archives, and it had that witness's handwritten statement about what he had seen when he came into the house. Um, in addition to a, a handwritten statement by my great-great-grandfather about what he had seen. Um, they had the original arrest warrant for her and everything. So they, they put uh, they put the habeas grabus on her um, right there, and the local marshal locks her up in the town jail, and my great-great-grandfather is notified over in Mason, which is about 20 miles from Williamston, and he has to take the train over to Williamston, and they have to have a coroner's inquest um, to make sure that she's dead, believe it or not. And they have to do it right there in front of the body. They have to have round up six uh, local citizens, and they have to hear the, the evidence and determine that, yes, there looks like there was a crime committed. And so they, uh, they bury her the next day, and my great-great-grandfather, the sheriff, takes her back over to Mason, and two or three days later she's committed to the uh, Home for the Criminally Insane in uh, mid-Michigan here, which was located in Ionia. Uh, She ended up dying about a year after she was incarcerated there, but she was definitely um, had some some, uh, psychological problems. So she died at, at what, 29, 30 years old? Absolutely, yes. Yes, she did. And what did she die of? She died of uh, what they called back then was consumption, um, which was actually tuberculosis. Mm, Yeah. 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 Those uh, the, the places for the criminally insane and all those institutions were not the best places in the world. Probably not the most sanitary. Yeah. And, you know, I bet you no. you, got, you had a shot against some tuberculosis mm-hmm. and a thousand other things there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I actually tried to find her grave. I, I just out of curiosity and and I, I found her death certificate. Um, but it doesn't list any family coming to get her. So she may, in fact, actually still be buried there. Um, although it's not uh, a home for the criminally insane anymore, all of those old buildings have been torn down, and, and it now serves as the Riverside Correctional Facility for mid-Michigan. It's a prison. Um, but the original cemetery is still there, and, and she may, in fact, be buried there. What a story this not Dr. Ralph Basham is with us. Doctor, what... So- what is this? Is there any way of telling you get... What oh, is wrong with your phone? You know, every day. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> every day, Rod. to you, and I've got this ringer on. <laughs> My wife's phone's been talking back to her without any prompting whatsoever. It just starts talking to her. Must Restart your phone. I never use it. That's exactly it. So is there any specific malady that this Martha woman must might have been suffering <clears throat> from? I mean, it's just psychosis. Many but, things. Is it many things? Yeah, she. There could have been a lot of things. Yeah, she could. She could have had uh, a bipolar disorder. She could have had any kind of a psychosis. I mean, violence can kind of come from that. Um, she could have had paranoia uh, for, about her mother-in-law. I mean, there's a, yeah, um, could have been hallucinating. She, certainly, yeah, she was. She was criminally insane. I mean, she just. Uh, she just, just snapped. I mean, when well, someone runs amok, I mean, there's a problem. There always is a small chance that. She was justified in the murder and then went nuts after she saw what she did. Do you think so? I mean, you know, Just a small that, that's chance. always a chance when things like this happen. It's oh, like, you somebody know, was abusing her. Yeah, she, and then oh, yeah, chance. and then not a lot of people like 
can handle the act of killing someone, they'll, yeah, you know, so that's entirely possible. Who knows? I suppose that is probably. No, w- w- did, did she show any signs of violence before this, Rod? Um, no, most of the, the most of the history I found out about her was not violent, other than the fact that she suffered frequently from epileptic seizures, and uh, they said that she would um, uh, break into um, prayer and things at inappropriate times, um, and kind of just mumble and things like that. Um, incidentally, the the name of the book "To Hell I Must Go." Uh, I originally it was going to be head of the table, uh, but I thought <laughs> uh, it, we, might, we might not get that. So, so I, w- I was doing some research, and, and while she was in in the Ingham County Jail, uh, she would sing a little song. She, uh, she, and it was uh, "I Can't Go to Heaven, to Hell I Must Go." Murderers can't go to heaven. So that's where I must go, oh. and um, and I thought, well, that that'll make a great title. But uh, in in addition to that, uh, right after she sang that little ditty, she collapsed in the cell, and and went into uh, like a seizure. Oh. So um, mm. you know, I, I don't know what the the prognosis was, other than she was in she was declared insane by a panel of doctors. What, what an amazing story. I, it certainly does sound like some sort of psychosis. But yeah. I don't know of any cor- comorbidity between epilepsy and psychosis. No. No. That, uh, no. Yeah, so I don't know. But also, you know, 1890, how much did we know about the human brain? Well, and sometimes you just don't know why people do what they do. Yeah, but even exactly. now, I, I don't think there's a relationship between the two. Yeah, I don't no. think so. You would think there would be because, you know, epilepsy is basically a disorder where the brain does things it's not supposed to. But I better watch out for my knees. There are very yeah. specific things that go into psychosis. Mr. Sadler, are, is this kind of thing pretty common throughout the world? Because this is the first time I've heard of Martha, of course. To Hell I Must Go, the true story of Michigan's Lizzie Borden. Does this, has this happened a lot more than we know you know, I don't know. Quite honestly, I was wondering, I've always wondered if maybe she saw or read the articles about Lizzie Borden um, that happened two or three years before this. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe she saw saw some media reports about that and thought, hey, this is a good way to get rid of my mother-in-law. Um, you know, I never I, thought about an ex before. <laughs> I know there's a lot of comments that could be made right now, but um, uh, no, that's not anything I haven't thought about 300 times. But uh, yeah, um, you know, I just don't know. I, I, you know, you read about it occasionally. Um, I'm from the Mid Michigan area. Mm-hmm. We had a, a, a murder here about two years ago uh, where a, a guy beheaded uh, his neighbor. Um, you just like 20 miles from here. So it, I guess it happens, you know. Um, <laughs> but this sort of thing can happen once in a while. Yeah, you never know. You know, that was very cop-like what you just did, Rob. Yeah. You know, it happens. It does happen. Uh, Same thing. I, Rod, uh, my mother's family, half of them were cops and the other half were gangsters. So it was a pretty, oh, inter- wonderful. pretty interesting family when I was growing up, I'll tell you that. But, uh, yeah, but Christmas was fun. Oh, Christmas. Yeah, she made everybody, when they came over, she made them all the cops and the other guys. She said, put your guns in the pantry, and then she locked the pantry. I did that every year. Was, I see the book is selling well. There's only six left on Amazon. Look at that. Oh, you know, they restock those occasionally, and, and everybody says to me, hey, how's your book doing? Because I, I actually have two books that I've written. The, the other one is, uh, uh, we can save this for another day, but it's about a double murder here in, in Michigan in 1955 by an escaped convict. And everybody says, hey, how's your books doing? And I go, I don't know. I don't follow the. I honestly don't follow those numbers. I enjoy writing as a hobby. Right. Um, you know, I don't make a million dollars off it. The first book was a... Kind of a short book, uh, this To Hell I Must Go, is about 175 pages. I like to tell people that I made it with big font and lots of pictures because I knew <laughs> cops would be reading it. Oh, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like but it. The, the second Making book friends. is substantially longer, um, and uh, but I don't, I don't follow the numbers. Um, I just do it because I enjoy doing it. You know, i got to tell you, Rod, I've, I've 
like I said, I grew up around cops. Uh, my mother's cousin, my second cousin, Lamont Dean, was a Hennepin County deputy sheriff. He was a Minneapolis cop, so there, I was always around cops. And then his son became a copper, and I just, where I grew up, a lot of guys from my neighborhood became cops. It's, uh, it's an interesting, I was told a story, a friend of mine just passed away, unfortunately. He was a Minneapolis cop. And my favorite story of his was, he said he was on patrol one night, and a guy rolled through a, a stop sign. So I pulled him over, and I went up and I said, uh, he didn't stop at a stop sign. And the guy said to me, well, I slowed down. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start punching you in the face, and you can either tell me to stop or slow down. It's up to you. (laughs) I never tried thought of that one. He was unbelievable. Oh, my God. It's uh, it's an interesting world. How many years were you a cop? You said, what, 30 years? Uh, Yeah, about 30 years. Um, I did uh, 25 years uh, at a a rural uh, sheriff's office here in Michigan, and I had about five years' experience before that. So, yeah, it was about 30 years total. Did you see things you thought you'd never see? Uh, I used to investigate um, all of our fatal accidents here in our county. And uh, so I've seen probably... Uh, more than than the average officer would have seen um, as far as death and misery. And I was also a police artist. Um, you know, I actually got my start uh, tracing bodies. Um, that was a joke. You can uh, laugh. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I actually was a police artist, and so I interviewed a lot of people that had been victims in violent crimes. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I saw my share. Well, I, I admire people like you because a lot of people, I have a friend, as a matter of fact, he's a psychologist, and his specialty is uh, going to talk to families who've just lost a child. And I said, you uh, chose that profession. He goes, well, yeah, somebody has to do it. And uh, I said, it's got to be incredibly sad. He said, it is, but, you know, they, they need help. What are you going to do? you got to help them. I, and I'll tell you, I had to deliver a death message once in 30 uh, years, and I said I would never do that again. And yeah, the people that, that do that are victim advocates that come out to the scenes of mm-hmm. fatal accidents to help the family and um, uh, hospice nurses that deal with the terminally ill. Those people are angels, and yep. Yep. I, that is something that I could not do. And there's a reason the phrase, don't kill the messenger, exists. Yeah, that's right. Yes. That's exactly yes. it. To Hell yeah. I Must Go, the true story of Michigan's Lizzie Borden, Rod Sadler's S-A-D-L-E-R. It's available on Amazon. Great interview, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Our, we did as well. Thank you. Rod Sadler, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back. Tom Bernard Show.